what the command is for us to be one and how we're to walk it out. And uh, it's found in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 4, Philippians 2. If you're able to stand with us, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Philippians 2, 1 through 4, the title 1. It reads this way, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, Philippians 2.2, 2, make my joy complete, says Paul, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves. This is our theme verse for Philippians. Have this mindset or attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Father, as we have read these opening verses of chapter 2, thank you for them. They're uh, breathed out by God. They will be profitable for us as we take them in. May our hearts be pliable. May you give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to us in this hour. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now the linking uh, word, if you have a New American Standard Bible to the previous section, is the word therefore. There may be some different... Uh, ways it's rendered in different versions of the Bible. But the New American Standard says, therefore, linking us back specifically to verses 27 through 30. Here's what we looked at last time. Only conduct yourselves, 27 verse chapter 1, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, that's a gladiatorial, uh, the arena language, standing together, fighting together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed, we talked about that word as a word for spooking a horse. In no way spooked or alarmed by your opponents, that's the external opponents to the gospel, which is a sign, an omen of destruction for them. They don't belong to God, they're gonna be judged, but a sign of salvation for you and that too from God. For the, these dual graces have been granted to you, brethren, for it has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him or be saved, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same Greek word agon, where we get agony, conflict, back into the idea of the arena and a struggle in combat is the idea. Experiencing the same agon or agony which you saw in me and now here to be in me, Paul might say, as I write to you from prison. Therefore, the connecting word taking us from uh, external opponents to the gospel, and there will always be those, people who make fun of the gospel, people who ridicule Christians, etc., people who love when something terrible happens to jump on the bandwagon and say, you see, the church is a bunch of hypocrites, you name it to what now we are going to deal with, which is more of an internal threat. That is that much of the problems in the church have nothing to do with external opposition, but much to do with our internal shortcomings. 
And all God's people said, yeah, <laughs> it's very true. So stories have come out over the years about ugly things happening in churches. A couple of examples. R. Kent Hughes writes in his commentary on Philippians, when a certain church in Dallas became divided, the riff was so bitter that each instituted a lawsuit seeking to dispossess the other from the church's property. This despite the scriptures warning about taking such matters before public courts. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 8. The story, of course, hit the Dallas newspapers and garnered considerable interest from the readers. The judge wisely ruled that it was not within the, pro the province of the court to decide such matters until the case had been heard before the denomination's church court. So the dispute was remanded to the ecclesiastical court or church court, where eventually the decision was made to award the real estate, church real estate, to one side. The losers withdrew and formed another church nearby. Church growth the American way. Now, it was reported in the Dallas newspapers, no doubt to de the delight of some, that the church court had traced the trouble to its source. The trouble began when at a church dinner, an elder had been served a smaller piece of ham than a child seated next to him. Imagine the laugh the good people of Dallas got out of that one, close quote. We've traced the source of the disagreement, the division, the ridicule. I didn't get a bigger piece of ham than that kid. He got two biscuits, I only got one. They took the last maple bar. Now it's getting personal. <laughs> I wanted that. Don't they know I like the old fashioned with the little sprinkles? That's my donut. And we can go on and on with the things that happen. Chuck Colson wrote a book called The Body some years ago. And he records an ugly scene involving a new pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church on the outskirts of Boston. The pastor stirred up some trouble when he went uh, on some home visitation. So he was following a pastor who had a 25-year pastorate. And uh, he wanted to get to know the people. So under the guise of getting to know them, he began to do some home visitation. But his goal was to dig up dirt on all the church members. So he got the people to gossip about them. He wanted to find out all the worse in the people, basically to be able to have information to manipulate people when he needed it. And he did just that. And he was using information that he had gleaned from these interviews, basically, to put people in their place or hold it over their heads. And as this went on and on, finally the deacons of the church had had enough. And so they decided they were going to call a congregational meeting uh, to deal with the pastor and try to get him to resign. The problem was the pastor had control of the microphone. So every time they were going to make an announcement about this congregational meeting, the pastor would block them because he had the mic or he had start some music and the meeting would not be announced. And so this went on and on. And finally, one of the deacons named Ray Bryson had had enough. He moved forward to the front of the church, had an altercation with the pastor and decked him right in the nose, <laughs> right in front of the communion table, which read, this do in remembrance of me. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is true, and it doesn't stop there. Upon seeing the melee between the deacon and the pastor, some of the choir members jumped from the choir loft down in front of the communion table, and a brawl broke out. And there were fists flying and people getting hit and vases breaking and 
You name it, it got really ugly. Finally, the police were called and they came and they broke it up and the uh, participants of the brawl had to appear in court the following Wednesday. They walked into the city courtroom, a judge was there, and as the litigants walked in, the judge recognized them. The judge happened to be a Jewish Orthodox man uh, from a non-Messianic Jewish uh, synagogue, and he had played softball against these guys in a softball league. So he recognized them as church leaders from Emmanuel Baptist Church, who, by the way, were trying to witness to people in the community about the saving grace of God and all of that. So basically, the judge said to these folks when he heard what had happened, what's going on here? Is, is this what your teacher, Jesus, tells you guys to do? And on and on it went. Everybody obviously was pretty embarrassed. He told them, basically, go deal with it. He dismissed them out of the courtroom. They walked out. And as each of the cars drove in different directions away from the courthouse, each with a bumper sticker reading, God is with us at Emmanuel Baptist Church. A book was written by Leslie Flynn with the dubious title, Great Church Fights, having the following quote. In the church, the, uh, in the church there is the bond of family, yet room for variety. The devil, the devil tries to disrupt unity. Two chickens tied at the leg and thrown over a clothesline may be united, but they do not have unity. <laughs> And the final quote from Merrill C. Tenney in a commentary on the Gospel of John, he writes, within the church of historic Christianity, there have been a wide divergences of opinion and ritual. Unity, however, prevails wherever there's a deep, genuine experience of Christ. For the fellowship of the new birth transcends all historical and denominational boundaries. Paul of Tarsus, Luther of Germany, Wesley of England and Moody of America would find deep unity with each other, though they were widely separated by time, by space, by nationality, by educational background, and by ecclesiastical connections. Close quote. I'm afraid that sometimes in our world, we as the Christian church have our firing squads, as it's been put, in a circle. And we shoot at each other, and we wound and hurt one another. And I'm not talking about essential Christian doctrine because in essentials, we must be agreed. And if a group does not agree on the essentials like the Trinity, the deity of Christ, salvation by grace alone, etc., they're not a Christian church. So put that aside. I'm not talking about non-Christian churches. And I would even say that denominations, old line denominations that are now bankrupt and have compromised essential doctrine need to be dealt with. And I believe that God is disciplining even these denominations because their numbers have waned and nobody's even going to these churches anymore. Very few people are because people can see through it. But I'm talking about the body of Jesus Christ. Whether we consider people sitting in the same church building or the variation of churches that are in the community that may vary by denomination or style or what have you, we are supposed to be one. In fact, Jesus in John 17 prayed this the night before he died. Father, you write down if you're taking notes, John 17, 20 through 23. Father, my prayer for them is that they would be one as we are one. Now, I want you to think about how close that oneness is. 
Because Jesus' prayer is appealing to the oneness within the triune God. And it's been well said that within the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there already existed a love relationship. And we, we know we've looked at some of the theology of the Trinity, but I want you to hear Jesus. Father, that they, the disciples and those who believe in me because of their witness, be one as we are one, Father, Son, and by extension, Holy Spirit. He goes on to say that they may be perfected in unity. Please listen. That the world may know that the Father sent the Son, and I'm paraphrasing now, to be the Savior of the world. That they, my prayer for them, Lord, is that they would be perfected in unity. That they would be one. And there's so many things that fight against our oneness. We all know, those of us who are married, that the two become one in marriage. But you all know that to continue to foster oneness is work. Amen? It, it does take prayer and self-sacrifice. And so though we are one in our marriage bond, for those of you who are married, yet we have to work on our oneness. We have to walk out our oneness. And the same principle applies in the body of Christ. We have external opposition, and we're to be immovable, steadfast, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But we have internal issues as well. That is what Paul is going to address. And the evidence is, as we go on in this book, in chapter 3, it seems like the Philippian church is dealing with the Judaizing heresy. I'll get into the, that more as we get into that chapter. And in chapter 4, it's clear that two women who were strategic in helping Paul in the gospel ministry are at odds with one another. And Paul's going to ask them to live in harmony in the Lord, to walk out their oneness, if you will. So that's ahead of us. But these verses are going to deal with the specific issue of how we walk out oneness. Take a look. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, this is what's called a conditional clause in the Greek. And so this means you could have it this way. Since there is encouragement in Christ. So if you could, you could read it this way. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there's any consolation of love, and there is. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and there is. If there's any affection and compassion, and there is. And what Paul does is he goes back to four realities, if you're taking notes, four things he asked them to recollect, or so you could say four recollections of when they first met Jesus. And he wants them to think back to the time that they first became a believer. Now, if you're not a believer, these could be brand new to you. So I pray that if you don't know Christ, this would be the first experience you have of these four things. But for many of you, this is going to be a reflection. For me, it's back to the late 80s when me and my beautiful bride, Brenda, who was up doing the announcements today on the video, heard the gospel. And we walked forward together at an altar call at a church in Orange and gave our lives to Jesus. We were newly married. or Actually, I think we were still dating at that time. I think we were engaged. And we had seen each other live without Jesus. We had seen what life looked like on a shaky foundation of, of the sand of the world, if you will. And when we became believers, 
It was an amazing moment. I remember feeling like the preacher was speaking just to me and feeling conviction over sin and knowing, seeing my desperate need for the gospel and finding consolation in Christ. You know, the biggest consolation I needed was over my sin. I had sinned against God. I know I had broken his heart. I know I had manipulated and used others for my own selfish interests. I know that I had done things that were out of order and not right in God's sight. And I found consolation for my soul. And so did my bride. And after we uh, got saved, we began, began a journey together. And my wife would tell you, she did not marry a pastor. When we got married, I was not a pastor. But the Lord was doing a work in both of our lives and conforming us into the image of Christ. And, and that has still been a work in process, but it's much different today than when we first started out. And that's the beauty of hanging in there and the beauty of sanctification is God will continue to do a good work in you. So don't lose heart. And Paul says, I, I want you Philippians to reflect back on when you first met that love, when you first experienced that encouragement. Look at verse one. Uh, that encouragement in Christ, that consolation if you have a new King James in Christ. The first word, paraklesis, is consolation, comfort, solace, specifically dealing with the refreshment that one experiences when you believe in Jesus as your Messiah, Savior. You get the ultimate consolation that is the forgiveness of your sin. The biggest weight we bear as individuals, though you won't hear this from the world, is the guilt of our sin. And when that guilt gets dealt with and eradicated and removed from your life, it brings a consolation that I don't even know if I can put into words. But for those of you who have experienced it and you know that God has taken your sin and and from as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, that is a burden that gets lifted from you in Christ Jesus. And it is wonderful. The second thing, the recollections or realities that you experience is consolation of love. You know, when I heard about the love that Jesus has for me, when I heard about the love demonstrated at the cross, when I heard John 3.16, for the first time, God so loved the world. Uh, Paul put it this way, he loved me, Galatians 2.20, and gave himself up for me. When I saw my sin for what it was, and his love, how far, how deep, how uh, condescending, he was, he was willing to condescend and become a man and bear my burden at the cross, that love is better than life. And that love is the consolation of my soul. It's that love that surpasses knowledge as it's celebrated in Ephesians, I think it's chapter three. And so the love of God is so beautiful, so wonderful. And Paul's saying, I don't want you to forget that love, that consolation of love. Notice the third thing, four recollections or realities. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We all share, we all participate in the life of the Spirit. I mean, I could go anywhere in the world, and I have traveled, I've done some traveling, and I meet a Christian anywhere on the globe, and immediately we have a bond. There's some people I could only talk to through translators, because we didn't speak the same language, but we had the language of heaven, if you will. We knew we were brothers or sisters, brother and sister in Christ Jesus. 
One big, amazing family from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, one in Christ. It's amazing. Different styles of worship. You could go to Africa. You could go to Nepal. And it's different, yet we are one in Christ. I want you to just flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a little bit back. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Paul is dealing with the body, and he uses the human body as a metaphor or an image to convey the thought that you belong and that we're one. And here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. Even as the body, that is the body of Christ or the church is one and yet has many members, 1 Corinthians 12, 12, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. It is not for this reason any less part of the body. If the ear should say, if the ear could talk and said, well, I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. It is not for this reason any less part of the body. Skip down to verse 20. But now there are many members, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. I was listening to the testimony of Beckett Cook, came out of the homosexual lifestyle in 2012, and uh, was brought to Christ through a church called Reality LA. He met some believers in Hollywood. They had Bibles on the table. They were doing a Bible study. He was interested, so he asked them about what they were doing, and then he said he asked them the $64,000 question, what do you believe about a homosexual, homosexuality? They were honest with him, but loving at the same time. And they invited him to the church. And he said he couldn't believe it, but the next Sunday he found himself at Reality LA. The rest is history. And Beckett's been a believer and, and the Lord's using him in amazing ways. And he talks about how there were three miracles that happened to him in a church service like this through prayer. And ways uh, where God just confirmed. He was praying over something and someone spoke a word to him or he needed someone to walk over to him and, and the Lord did it. Uh, just miracle kind of things. But one of the Sundays, he came forward for prayer, and he said, I don't know why more people don't come forward for prayer at, in church services. He said, free prayer. Can it get any better? He said he came forward for prayer every Sunday. And he got, somebody laid hands on him, and they prayed for him, and he said he was delivered that day from depression. He said he felt uh, a power, a tingling sensation actually described it as coming through the bottom of his feet and going out the top of his head. And from that day forward, he was forever delivered from depression. Now he wanted to qualify it. And he said, you know what? It doesn't always happen that way. And sometimes God has his reasons why, you know, things don't happen immediately. But I'll tell you, this is the beauty of the body of Christ. It's not just about us singing some songs and taking in a sermon. We are one. And if I know that my foot is hurting, believe me, I'm going to take some care of my foot because I know I need my foot. It's amazing how you can hear one part of your body can be hurting that you take for granted, like a pinky or a, a toe. And oh, 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 you know it needs attention. And 
the point is this. We are one body in Christ. And we are to love each other and remember who we are. The last thing, if you flip back to Philippians 2, in these uh, remembrances or realities of experiencing Christ is affection and compassion. Our God is full of compassion. And that's what we experienced when we met Jesus was the compassion of God. His mercies are new every morning. They never fail. Our God is a God of compassion. And I'll I'll tell you one more thing that JP mentioned. He was talking about the healing miracles of Jesus. And yes, many of them were signs that uh, were intended to get the gospel to people or to become a metaphor for a spiritual need that people had. But Jesus also healed because he was full of compassion. And he had compassion when he saw the people in Matthew 9, like sheep without a shepherd, scattered, downcast. He said to the disciples when the multitudes had followed him, I have compassion for the people because they've been following me for all this time and they don't have anything to eat. Our God is full of compassion. And that's why when you had the desperate need for your salvation, when you met Christ, he, he gave compassion to you. He didn't need to, by the way. He could have rejected you. But when you reached out simply and said, Lord, I repent and I believe, compassion came your way. It was compassion that called you in the first place. And so unity is around these uh, similar experiences of all of us coming to the Lord in the same way. Four recollections or realities, now four outcomes in verse 2, Philippians 2. So since this has happened, make my joy complete. You want me to be happy, says Paul, writing from prison? I want you to do these four things. Be of the same mind, number one. Maintaining the same love. United in spirit. That's the soul here, the human spirit. Intent on one purpose. Four recollections or realities. Four implications of those realities or outcomes. I want you to be of the same mind. Unity is the benchmark of the gospel. And so this doesn't mean that we all need to think exactly the same about everything. This has to do with the essentials of the faith or the gospel itself. We do have diversity. We don't all think the same thing about all the different topics. We don't all dress the same. That would really scare me if you all came in in (laughs) similar garb. It would be cultic (laughs) and weird right? We know the diversity exists, but we are to be of one mind as it relates to the kingdom of God. Amen? We're to put on the mind of Christ. We're to have the priorities of heaven. Number two, we're to maintain the same love. Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by your love one for another. Love one another as I have loved you, so you should love one another. That's how people will know. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. But wives, before you rib your husbands, you're to love your husband as God loves you. Now you'll be working on that one for the rest of your life. All of us will be. 
That's why we need the love of Jesus flowing through us. That's why we're commanded to put on love in the book of Colossians, to clothe ourselves with the love of God. Now, I want you to be of the same mind, maintain the same love. We've got to maintain it. I want you to be united in spirit. The single Greek word sumsukas means I want you to be one-souled. That is, I want your souls to be so linked. The true you is your soul. Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You could win the whole world, but if you forfeited your soul, it wouldn't be worth it. And I want you to be one-souled with other brethren. I want you to be linked in the true you to know what life is about and what truth is about and what love is about and to be yoked up, one-souled. And then, finally, I want you to be intent on one purpose. And what is that one purpose? Live a life. Remember last week? This one thing. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is your purpose. If you're a Christian, you have purpose. You know what it is? It's to be united to the body in the body of Christ and proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Just imagine what might happen if all Christians got united around the gospel. Imagine what would happen if on the national day of prayer, all the Christian churches in Corona and Norco and Riverside, as one person, gathered and cried out to God. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about that we are one. And I will tell you, there's a song by, sung by Darlene Check of Hillsong, of all things, where she talks about we're one body. We have one destiny. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. And we are endeavor, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We might sum it up this way. Paul might say, don't forget who you are, how you were saved, that you are a product of God's grace, and now I want you to live a life worthy of that. I want you to show this visible unity to the world. I want you to be unified in mind. Not to think exact, exactly the same, but be on the same mission and purpose. I want you to keep the main thing the main thing. We hear that all the time, don't we? Keep the main thing the main thing. I want you to turn your eyes upon Jesus and look into his wonderful face. And the things of this earth, they'll grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is Paul's exhortation, grounded in divine certainties about salvation, lived out in divine commands of oneness. Simple, but challenging. And it will get harder, because verse 3 says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Now, just in case you wondered, the Greek word for nothing means nothing. Just in case you were looking for a loophole. Do nothing. Now, this week, I challenge you to do nothing from selfishness. Do you know what selfishness is? It's sometimes rendered strife in the original language, but it means to put oneself forward. It speaks of partisanship or fractiousness. 
It is self-promotion and God demotion. Hear that one more time. Selfishness is self-promotion and God demotion. Humanism at its core, which is the religion of the secular world, is me first. Everything else is second. The Christian faith says God, others, then yourself. Humanism says me, me, and me, and then maybe you if there's some leftovers. This week, when you're making your morning cup of coffee, for those of you who are married, and you set it up, and it dribbles into the cup, and you're just waiting, because some of you can't even speak until you've had that sip of the morning coffee. <laughs> How about if you said, you know what? This is for her. This is for him. And I know if you're married, you may have to get creative if you're not. But... This week, how about if everything you did was considering someone else before you? <gasps> how opposite is that of our culture? Because the mantra of the culture and the kids that have grown up in the last 20, 30 years is not self-sacrifice or esteem others better than yourself. It is self, come on, esteem. We finished in 14th place in the Little League, but we get a trophy for finishing in 14th place. Here's your trophy. What's it for? Participation. You participated well. You put on your uniform. You, uh, you know, you shined up your cleats. You participated. Yeah, but we finished in 14th place. Oh, never mind that. You're a winner in our book. <laughs> No, you finished in 14th place. Let it teach you a lesson to get better. <laughs> or to use a comedian's line, your son stinks at baseball. Face it. <laughs> Sorry, that's probably not a good Christian thing to say. Self-promotion will always be God demotion, but it will be something else. It will be demoting others as well. How can I possibly put others first when the secular city says it's all about me? Notice the second thing, 3A. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Empty conceit is rendered vainglory. It means empty pride, self-conceit, but it's empty glory. When you make it all about you, Frankly, you're just a windbag and everybody sees through it. Pride is the mother of all sin. Pride is what got the devil kicked out of heaven. Pride, according to Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, which is addressed to the king of Babylon, and you can think of Nebuchadnezzar and how God humbled him. But in a, on a secondary level, many scholars believe it's addressed to Lucifer or Satan. I will, you know, ascend above the stars of God. I will be like the Most High. And God says, no, you won't. And if that view is correct, it walks itself out by Satan taking a third of the angels and causing a split in heaven. This is a little bit debated, but this is one major view. Think about it. The if the devil indeed did that, he caused a split in heaven. Should it shock us that churches split? 
and that the devil divides people. Pride is the root of destruction. In fact, I, I shared a couple stories of, of churches that went down and fell hard. And at the root of them, if it wasn't a woman, which in many of the cases with these pastors, it has been, it's been power and pride. You say, well, what's the solution? It's in verse three, part B. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Rousseau, who was an enemy of Christianity, said, I rejoiced in myself. My consolation lie in my self-esteem. Let's walk down the street. We'll talk about ourselves. Self, 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 self. Do you ever just get sick of self? Do you ever just get tired of that stuff? Now, I know we got to live with ourselves, so it's kind of hard, but it's a mindset. It's humility of mind. In the Hebrew picture language, humility is interesting. It's the word in Hebrew, shock. It's S-H-C-H. You got to say it with a little spit in your mouth to say it correctly in a Hebrew way. Shock, something like that. And you know what it means in the Hebrew picture language? Humility means to get low. And another way the, you can take the language in pictures is humility destroys the wall. So get this. In, in the Hebrew language, sin is pictured in a man who has a trowel and every time he sins against God or somebody else, he puts another brick in the wall. And he erects the wall brick by brick by brick until he has closed himself in with his sin, cut himself off from God because sin separates us from God and from others. Humility destroys the wall. Humility brings the wall of sin down so that you can be reconciled to God and to others. Isn't that a cool image? If you want the walls to come down in a broken relationship right now, if, if you want something to be healed in your family or whatever it is, put your hat in your hand and go to that person in humility and it will be resolved. Because God resists the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. And when you get low and you put your hat in your hand and you go to somebody in humility, what, what are they going to say? It's when pride gets in the way that walls go back up. Walls come down in the light of humility. And it's hard because sometimes our flesh rises up. And here's the thing. Shock is the end of Mashiach. And it's what characterized the Messiah and as we study the great passage of next week, we'll talk about how he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We'll talk about what many scholars call his self-humiliation or his self-humbling. And, and essentially what Paul is saying is, uh, is if you are in Christ, this is what you do. You, you claim to follow him, then you humble yourself the way Christ did. Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly. I am gentle and humble in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29. And in me you will find rest for your souls. I, I'm going to use a story that uh, came up, Paul. I'm going to use a story because we were at an event together, uh, the Corona Life Services, uh, dedication of their ultrasound machine. And I found this to be funny, so I, I, I think it'll be cool. Uh, it's not the way you intended it, but it's, it's funny. So 
Paul and his daughter were at the uh, dedication of the ultrasound machine, and they, Paul told me that he was watching me, and uh, I was just kind of floating around and, um, you know, talking to people, and I, I don't think I had a name tag on. And so afterwards, Paul said, you know, Pastor Michael, he, he said, I was telling my daughter that, you know, Pastor Michael's the, the significant-sized church in Corona, he's on the radio, but you walked around as a man of no reputation there. And he, and he was saying it in a positive sense, but I kind of took it jokingly, and I started introducing myself as a man of no reputation. So uh, there you go. So whatever meaning that has for you. <laughs> Hello, I am a man of no reputation. But uh, anyway, <laughs> thank you, Paul, for that. That was good material. Anyway, verse 4. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. Of course, you're going to have to look out for some of your personal interests, right? But don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also, and this confirms that it's not that you can't uh, look out for your own interests. The Bible commands you to do so, but also for the interests of others. See the word look out? The, the two words look out is one word in Greek. It's scopio. Just like it sounds, it means to scope out. So I want you to imagine a submarine cruising along, and out of the water comes that little scope. This is what you're supposed to be doing as a Christian. <laughs> you're supposed to be scoping out the needs of other people. Don't approach them with this kind of gesture because <laughs> might freak them out. But anyway, scope them out. In other words, you are to be on the lookout as to how you might be a blessing to other people. Isn't that cool? So maybe this week, as you're looking around and thinking about, the Holy Spirit will help you. Someone comes to your heart. Text them. Hey, I was just thinking about you, and I know you're going through something, and I'm praying for you. Or, hey, I was just thinking about you, and I miss you, and I just want to tell you I love you. You're my brother and sister in Christ. Whatever you might say. Or maybe it's that there's a renewed fervor for something long lost, in our culture called chivalry. Take note of that word. That means you open your, the door for your, your lady. You give her flowers when it's not a national holiday. She's shocked. You begin to acknowledge national holidays that you used to say you don't acknowledge. <laughs> Believe me, it matters. Love is not rude. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 it is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered, and love keeps no record of wrongs. To sum it up, verse 5 will be the bridge verse into next week, but it sums up this section saying these words. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The word attitude is a word which means a mindset. You know, uh, there was an old commercial floating around and it was, attitude is everything. But the world has this view of it. It's kind of like, you do your best to change your attitude. How many of you have decided on a Sunday, all right, make a declaration, tomorrow I am going to have a better attitude. I'm going to wake up in the morning and smile. I'm going to practice in the mirror. 
And so you, you think, okay, I'm, I'm going to do it now. So it's just like that Monday diet, you know. All right, <laughs> that's it. Start the diet. And then it's somebody's birthday in the office and there's chocolate cake. How could you say no to chocolate cake? You're free in Christ. <laughs> so you say, tomorrow. Tomorrow, tomorrow. I love you. Tomorrow. Anyway. The Bible is not talking about just try harder. It is talking about imitation, imitate Christ, but there is no imitation without impartation. Are you with me? Jesus, here's one of my prayers. Would you love that person through me? Let it be your love. I might say something like this. Lord, I, I got no more to give. I'm out of strength. But you say that those who wait for you will renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles. So I don't have the power to love. I, I'm in a crummy mood. I, I could have a bad attitude. So please give me your smile. Please give me your heart for this person. Please grant me your love to give away. I don't have it. But I know I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So help me put away my pride, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, live through me. Lord, we know that Paul said in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This mindset, Lord, is very countercultural, very opposite the world, the flesh, and the, the devil. But it is your heart. And you said that this is how people will know that the Father sent the Son, that the world may know that we are Christians. In fact, the ancients used to say of the church, see how they love one another. Lord, would you forgive me and forgive us for the times that we have failed to love the way you love, the times that it's been easier to nitpick and put down and gossip and whatever else we might do, rather than remembering we are a byproduct of grace, we are saved and kept by grace, but Grace has implications, and we're to live a life worthy of that gospel of grace. And we can't do it by might, nor by power, but by your spirit. So would you help us to learn how to yield more, spend more time with you so that when we walk away from that time, we're so filled up to overflowing that it's just a natural overflow. It's not something we're trying to manufacture. Somebody once said, we're not manufacturers, we're distributors. We simply give out what you give us. A, a prayerfully, a constant flow to give away. Thank you for your patience with me, Lord. Your patience with us. Thank you that you don't keep a record of my sin. You've cast it away. And I'm so grateful. Help me not to keep a record of wrongs and others as well, but to, to have your heart in all things. 
Now, if you've not met Jesus with your head and heart bowed, and those of you who are believers, would you be praying and would you allow the word of God to sink down deep into your soul? Take a moment of reflection, selah, think about it, ponder it. See what the Spirit's saying to you.